The following audio is from Norris Ferry Community Church. More information about Norris Ferry Community Church is available at norrisferrychurch.org. Good morning. If you got your Bible, then uh, you can go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 20, 29 through 34. Matthew chapter 20, 29 through 34. It's good to be with you. I'm Jared Clary. Uh, For those of y'all that are guests, uh, we're glad to have you. I am the pastor over students and missions. And so while Tracy is out with some family, then uh, I get the privilege of, of being able to preach this morning. So Matthew chapter 20, 29 through 34. So as I was thinking about this text, then uh, it was this, I was just reminded of last year at camp, okay, for some of you guys. Then uh, I remember we were sitting on the bus and there's a particular student who has a very unique way of getting his mom's attention. He says, mama. Now that may not seem that unique, but it's unique. And we, we did this experiment on the bus and so there were five or six of us sitting towards the middle back of the bus, and mom's up in the front. And uh, so we all took turns saying, mama, mama, mama. It's very unique the way he says it. And she never turned around. It was like she never even heard us. She never, she never, it was as if we'd never spoken those words, right? She never heard us. She just kept talking. And then we like tap him, and we're like, you say it. And he didn't say it any louder than the rest of us. The bus wasn't any quieter with 40 people on it. And he goes, Mama. And it was like her head was attached to a string. And he had just pulled it. And she turned. It was, it was the most miraculous thing I'd ever seen. It was like, I, we all said it the same way. Mama, Mama, Mama. And then out of his mouth comes Mama. And she turns to look at what does her child need. And that's exactly what we're going to see in this text is that it that there's a significance to the title, but there's also something significant about the tone in which that's spoken. And so we're going to see here in the text is that Jesus has a title. It's the son of David. But there's a uniqueness to the way in which that tone is spoken that Jesus hears it in this text and he responds. Let me read our text again as we get started. Verse 29 of chapter 20. It says, And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes. And immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Let's pray. Lord, would you meet with us this morning? Lord, would you stir our hearts with faith? To believe your word, to believe who you are, and that we would live according to that. Lord, I pray this morning that you would comfort those who need to feel your compassion. God, I pray that you would challenge those who have become complacent or have forgotten about you. Lord, we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we're in the 
the discourses of Matthew. And so Matthew is laying out the story. It's his, it's his account of the gospel of, of Jesus, of who Jesus is and, and what he did. And so we're in this story of Matthew, and, and we've seen in the last couple of weeks where, where he's been talking about a kingdom, and he's been giving these parables about kingdoms. And so it's been really interesting to see how he's talked about that his kingdom doesn't function like the kingdoms of this world, that they're upside down, and the first will be last, and the last will be first. And then we get to this text, and it's kind of at the end of these discourses, and it's a really unique text because it kind of transitions us to somewhere else in the story of Matthew. And as we've been looking at this kingdom aspect, then this passage is going to key in on who is the king of the kingdom. And there's a title called Son of David. But before we get there, then we get verse 29 that gives us some context. And it gives us this geographical location of Jericho. Okay, so Jesus has been traveling And we know from earlier in the text that he's on his way to Jerusalem. And so the way that it's laid out, if you've got any questions, ask Mickey and Nancy. They just went to Israel. So the way that this is laid out is that that Jericho, if you remember from your Old Testament, is just across the Jordan. It was the first city that Joshua had come to, and they marched around it. And God gave them a miraculous um, victory, and the walls came tumbling down, right? And so the ruins of Jericho are there just across the Jordan, but about 10, 15 miles south of there, then there's the new city of Jericho. Okay, so it's about the distance of here to downtown. Okay, so just to give you some perspective. And so Jesus is on his journey to downtown, and he stopped here at Norris Ferry. Right? But Jesus has been in this region before. Most likely, Jericho in this region was where he was led out into the desert and tempted. It's where he had raised Lazarus from the dead. It's where he, he pulls Nicodemus down out of the tree and says, hey, I'm coming to your house, or not Nicodemus, Zacchaeus. And he comes to his house, and, and we see salvation for Nicodemus. I keep saying Nicodemus. Zacchaeus, he was the wee little man, right? He was the wee little man. Okay, so Zacchaeus, and so, so Jesus' fame is, is known throughout here that he can heal people. He's done all these different things. And so, so it's not surprising either that we see in verse 29 that that he's in Jericho and there's a great crowd, right? So that's not shocking for us. It just gives us this context. Now, the crowd's going to be important in a little bit. But the crowd is also something that Matthew points out multiple times. Forty-three times in the book of Matthew, he points out the crowd, the crowd, the crowd. Because the crowd kind of gives this, this sounding board for what Matthew is pulling out. The crowd kind of goes in mass. And, and then out of the mass, then we hear... These truth claims. And so the crowd is there. And so that's the context, the scene. Jesus is is near Jericho. He's headed to Jerusalem to where he's going to suffer and die. And and in three days, he's going to raise again from the dead. But we get this little passage. And so it's good for us, I think, to ask, why in the world did Matthew include this story in the gospel? It's a great question to ask as you're reading your Bible, you come to a passage and you go, okay, so wait a minute, why in all of the things they could have written, why this? Why would God have led them to write this down? It's a great question. And actually in, chap- in verse 30, we get a little hint as to why. It's the significance of these words, and behold. If Matthew were telling this story in person to us, then this phrase he would have been like, and so Jesus was going out of Jericho, and, and there was a big crowd around him. And guess what? 
He doesn't want you to miss this. And guess what? And we would say, what? What, what happened? He says, there's, there's these two blind guys. Well, that's not that shocking. There's these two blind guys there, and, and they're yelling out for Jesus, right? Now, this isn't shocking to us. This is everyday normal stuff. If you've ever, ever been to New Orleans, then you know that there's people that, that go to the same locations every day and, and beg, right? These are two beggars that are blind men who are in this area who are begging. That's not shocking. But what is shocking is what they say. And so if Matthew were telling us, I think he might have said it like this. He's like, there's these two guys and, and they were yelling out for Jesus. But they were saying, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And we all would have gone, <gasps> no, they didn't. Like, yeah, they did. And, and guess how the crowd responded? Yeah, they rebuked him and said, don't say that. Shh, be quiet. That's what the crowd said to him. Shh, don't say that. But they cried out again. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Now, for you and I, then, that title, son of David, doesn't have this wow factor to it. But the shock of this passage is that, that they called him this title, and not just did they say it like crazy people, they said it and Jesus responded to it. He actually called back to them and had them come to him. He responded to the title, son of David. Now that's shocking. That's behold. That's guess what? And so Matthew doesn't want us to miss what just happened. The title son of David carries these massive implications, kind of like mama. It's not just a title. It carries all of the realities of that title. The selflessness, the sleepless nights, the care, the affection, but this title, Son of David, has massive implications. And so Matthew is drawing our attention to the reality of who is the king in the kingdom. Who is this Son of David? And Jesus responds to that title that these men attributed to him. So let's look and see where this comes from. These men might as well have said, Hey, Jesus promised Savior, eternal King forever, have mercy on us. That's what the title meant. So where do we get that from? If you look in 2 Samuel 7, you don't have to turn there. They're going to be up here. We're going to run through a whole list of some Old Testament passage and then get back into Matthew so that you can see the magnitude of this title because it doesn't carry the weight unless we really see what's going on. Okay, so in 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 and 13, you can write these down. Here's what it says. When, this is God speaking to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I, being God, will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Psalm 132, 11 says this, The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. 
Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. It's a passage we're familiar with, but, but catch this and listen to it. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Catch this, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It was promised in the Old Testament that there would be a son of David who would sit on the throne eternally. Acts chapter 13, the whole chapter, but specifically verse 23 says this. This is Paul and Barnabas speaking. They're preaching a sermon. And they say, of this man's offspring, speaking of David, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as promised. This is the point that Matthew is making throughout the gospel, that Jesus is the promised son of David. If you look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, here's how the whole book starts. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew 2, 23, all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? Is this him? Is he here? Matthew 21, verse 9, immediately following our passage this morning, then Jesus, it's his triumphal entry. He rides in on a donkey into Jerusalem. And verse 21 says this, or chapter 21, verse 9 says this, and the crowds went before him and that followed him, and they were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. In Matthew 21, 15 through 17, then, then we amp it up a little bit. Matthew's showing us, he's proving to us, Jesus is the son of David that was promised. And here's what Matthew 21, 15 through 17 says. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Why would this title make people mad? And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? Do you hear what they're calling you? Is what they were saying to Jesus. Do you hear the title that they're giving you? I love it. And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise. Yes, I am the son of David. And as if it couldn't get any clearer than Matthew twenty-two forty-one through 46, Jesus drops the mic here. He says, now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Who is the promised Messiah? Who is the one that you've been waiting for? This Old Testament promises a son of David. Who is he? Who do you say he is? And they said to him, the son of David. And he said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Jesus definitively says, I am the son of David, the promised savior, the eternal 
king. So how should that affect us? I want to give you three truths this morning that we see about Jesus as the son of David from this text. So verse 32, here's the first truth. It says that Jesus is the son of David who has all authority. Jesus has all authority. Verse 32, Jesus stops and he asks, what do you want me to do for you? Now, wrapped up in this question, it's, it's really peculiar. Because their response is, open my blind eyes. Let our eyes be opened. I don't know about you guys, but I've never been asked that. At my house, I get asked a lot, like, can you put up the dishes? Can you fold the laundry? Can I have a snack? Can you come wipe my bottom? Right? Like, that's what I get asked. Those are things within my reality to do, right? Like, I can do that. No one's ever come and asked me, hey, can you make me see again? It would be crazy for them to ask me that, right? It's illogical. It doesn't make sense. I don't have the power to do that. Why would they ask me? But when Jesus asked the question, they said, can you make our eyes see again? And he didn't laugh at them or scoff. He opened their eyes. Jesus has all authority. He's not bound to the laws of nature. He created the laws of nature. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. So for the promised king who has all authority, it's not absurd to ask the seemingly impossible. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. Matthew makes sure that we understand that at the end of his gospel in Matthew 28. Then he sends the disciples out and he says that he has all authority in heaven and on earth. So go. Because he's the king on this throne and he's ruling and reigning and there is no equal. Number two, the truth that we see is we see that, that Jesus is the son of David that rules with mercy and compassion. Look at verse 34. It says, and Jesus in pity. That word pity there, when I read it, I, I almost read it with a negative connotation. Some of y'all may be like me, but, but pity almost has this negative connotation to me. And I think that that comes from our culture because we all want to be these self-sufficient, self-sustaining people who are in positions of authority. And so if anyone needs help or can't do it on their own, we look down on them like, oh, well, I can do it, but he, oh, poor thing. Oh, poor you. We almost associate pity with, with this negative thing. But what's going on in this text is that Jesus, he sees their needs and he relates to them. He meets them in that. You see, the text right before that, that Tracy had talked about is that, that there's positions of authority and the Gentiles lord it over them. They have authority and they, they look down on people. But what Jesus said is, in, in my kingdom, if you have authority, you serve. And Jesus is modeling this, right? He's saying, I have all authority on heaven and on earth. And he's going to meet them in their need. 
See, it's all throughout the scripture, but specifically in the book of Matthew, then we see that Jesus has compassion on the crowds in chapter 9 because he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. It says, and he pitied them. He had compassion on them. In chapter 14, then, then there's people who are afflicted. And it says that he pities them. He has compassion on them because they have sicknesses or diseases. In chapter 15, then it says that as the crowds were out following him and it became late in the day that they were hungry, and it says, and he had pity on them. He had compassion on them because they were hungry. He met them in their needs. However large, however small, Jesus has compassion and mercy. The compassion that Jesus models is specifically what is taking him to Jerusalem to suffer and to die because he doesn't wish that any would perish but that all would come to know him. It's why he's giving his life as a ransom for the many because they have a problem that they can't fix. You and I have a sin problem that we can't fix. And Jesus looks at us in pity and in compassion and says, let me meet you in that. Are you weary and heavy laden? Come to me and you'll find rest. You see, just like the cry, mama, and she looked for the needs of her children. Jesus is merciful and compassionate. And when he hears, Mama, Daddy, God, Father, Jesus, he looks. And he meets us in our need. And he meets us in our compassion. With compassion. So if you're burdened by sin, you're not going to find a God who's looking down on you and saying, fix it yourself. You can find a God who wants to meet you and have compassion upon you. You have afflictions? Are you going through something hard? Come to God with it. You'll find mercy and compassion. It's who he is, and he models it for us here. He shows us that the son of David has all authority, but he rules with mercy and compassion. Number three. Jesus is the son of David who ushers in his kingdom. I get fired up about this. Verse 34 tells us that immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Jesus is the son of David who ushers in his kingdom. In the kingdom of heaven, as we've seen Jesus go around and he's beginning to establish his kingdom, then we see the blind see. It's actually a prophecy from the Old Testament that the blind will see and the lame will walk. But where I really get fired up is if you, look at math, if you look at Revelation chapter 21, then John gives us an even deeper glimpse into what the kingdom of heaven is going to be like. Now, Jesus is ushering it in, and so where Jesus goes, we see little glimpses of what the kingdom of heaven is going to look like. But here, the veil's pulled back for John, and he, he records as best he can what he sees and what it's like. And here's what it says, verse 1 of chapter 21, Revelation then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. 
Catch this. And I heard a loud voice from the throne. From the throne. From the eternal kingdom. The son of David sitting on his throne. Here's what he says. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people. In the kingdom of heaven, then the first relationship that's restored is the relationship of God and man that was lost by sin in the garden. And so as Jesus ushers that in, then we see this, this glimpse of relationship of God and man restored. But then it keeps going. It says, and, he will, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. In the kingdom of heaven in which Jesus sits on the throne and rules, there will be no more pain. There will be no more hurt. There will be no more death. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more affliction. Jesus is establishing his kingdom. And you don't want to miss it. says in verse 5, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the springs of water without payment. Jesus is the son of David, the promised king, who's going to reign on his throne for all of eternity. And he rules in mercy and compassion. And he's establishing his kingdom. And we don't want to miss it. But before we end, I think it's important that we've looked at who Jesus is as this son of David. But I think it's important for us to look at at the way that these blind men cried out. The tone of the voice, the familiar tone of the voice in which Jesus heard and answered. So let me show you, give you two, two realities of the way that these men cried out. Number one, they cried out independence. Now, God's been teaching me this for about the last year, which means I'm a slow learner. But this reality that we were created to be dependent is all throughout the scripture. And it fights so much against our culture. But these two blind men, they were physically blind. It means they can't see, right? That's what being blind means. And so they're in constant need, right? They're tripping over stuff. They need people to take them places. They cannot know where they are going. And they are in constant need of someone to help them. They're dependent people. But the reality is, was their spiritual eyesight was 2020. They saw Jesus perfectly. He's the king. He's the promised one. They saw what the physically able could not see. Because they were dependent people. And so they cried out. And they said, Lord, have mercy on us. Son of David. They cried out for mercy to the only one who could do anything for them. And so there's a really, really helpful application right here for us. If Jesus were to stand in front of you today and say, what do you want me to do for you? What would you say? If he's standing with you just like I am today and said, hey, what do you want me to do for you? 
What's your response? I want you to think about this this week. How would you respond? Would you respond in pride and say, I'm good? Well, some people will. Jesus stood in front of them and said, I'm the savior of the world. Put your hope in me, place your faith in me, and you'll have forgiveness of sins. And they said, I'm good. Are you self-sufficient, self-sustaining? You don't need Jesus for anything? Say, I got it. Maybe if Jesus asked you that question, you would ask for power or prestige or for possessions. It would reveal some areas in your life where you've got some idols that you think, if I could just get that, I'll be happy. So you view Jesus more like a big Santa Claus or a genie that, Jesus, if you can meet these three wishes, then I'll be good. Thanks. Maybe you would ask for something that God's already promised in the scripture, that he'll be with you, that he'll give you wisdom if you ask. Maybe, are you asking for things that he's already promised? He'll never leave you or forsake you. Maybe you have some very real needs. You're a dependent person. You go, God, I can't make it without you. And guess what? God's created us to be in that place. He wants us to live in that reality where we go, God, I can't make it without you. With Israel, he gave them food for a day. God, we can't make it without you unless you feed us again. Maybe it looks like this for you. Maybe God's called you to share the gospel with a coworker or a family member, and you're going, I can't. I can't. Guess what? Dependence. He'll be with you. Maybe you have an affliction or an illness. You go, God, I can't make it. Dependence. I'll give you what you need for the time that you need it. Maybe it's a decision that you just don't know what to do. I, I, I just don't know if I do this or if I do this. I, I, I don't know what to do. Dependence. Maybe it's a battle with sin and temptation. You're like, God, I can't beat this. I don't know how. I don't have the strength. I can't do it. Dependence. We don't have to fight against being dependent people and living in a, in a posture of dependence on God. He actually created us for that that we would fully rely on him and trust in him. It's good for us. And when we live like that, and we cry out, just like a mama, inclines her ear to the needs of her children. God inclines his ear to the needs and the afflictions of his children. And he listens. Now, he may not answer it the way you think he should, but I promise you this, he always answers it in the way that's best. Because he knows all things. And he's doing it according to his glory and your good. He hears you. But point number two, they cried out in dependence, but, but they also cried out in faith. We see this in the, in the way that this whole interaction breaks down. They, they cry out, Lord, have mercy on a son of David. Hey, let, let's just throw this out there and see if it hooks something, right? Let's just try it. And the crowds go, shh, don't say that. The cultural mass silenced them. But they cried out in faith because they said, no, no, no. You're not going to silence me when that's my only hope. 
You're not going to keep me quiet when that's my only hope. They believed that he was the son of David who had all authority, who ruled in mercy and compassion and could meet their needs. And they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us. Eternal king, promised savior, ruler forever, have mercy on me. They cried out in faith. But their faith didn't just stop in their crying out. Jesus spoke and said, what do you want me to do? And they didn't say, hey, can we have two pennies to buy bread for the day? They said, God, can you do the impossible? God, can you make me see again? They cried out in faith. They asked in faith. There's been a lot of abuse with the health and wealth and the name it, claim it. But I think sometimes we've seen it so abused in the church that we're afraid to ask God to do the impossible. If God asked you, what do you want me to do for you? Would you just ask him for something that your best friend could do? Or would you ask him for something that only the eternal king, the son of David, could do? The one who has all power and authority. See, God's not this genie in a bottle. You can't manipulate him to bend to your will. But you can ask him to do the things that he has the power to do. Remember, Jesus knows the hearts and the intentions of every man. And he acts according to his will for his glory and our good. Jesus knew the hearts of these blind men. That they were crying out to him in dependence and faith. And God, out of compassion reached into their world and did the impossible and gave them sight for his glory and for their good. He showed that he was the eternal king. So let me just ask this. Do you believe that Jesus can do exceedingly more than you can ever ask or think? Do you ever ask Jesus for things that only he can do? Do you cry out in faith, trusting that he will do what's best? These blind men, they put it all on the line, right? They said, he's my only hope, and he's the only one that can do it. What's the response of the crowd? These people are crazy. They're nuts. Blind people don't gain their sight. But they did. Because the son of David met them and he heard their cry and he answered them. My hope and my prayer for us today in this text is that we would see Jesus for who he is. That we'd be challenged to see Jesus as the son of David. He has a title that carries all of the implications. But that he hears and responds to those who cry out to him with dependence and faith. So as the band comes, I just want to challenge you to do business with God. If you need to come up here, husbands, if you need to grab your wife by the hand and say, hey, we, let's go cry out to the, to the one who can do it. Wives, if you want to elbow your husbands and say, we need to cry out to God. He's the only hope we have. He's the one who can do it. I want to just invite you, if you need to come up here, 
and show that posture of we're, we're laying it all out there, God. You're our only hope. It's open for you. If you need to do that in your seat, if you need to grab a friend and just say, will you cry out to God with me? I promise you this, he'll hear your cries and he'll respond. It may not look the way that you think, but it's gonna be what's best. Jesus is the son of David who has all authority, who rules in mercy and compassion and who hears the cries of his children when they cry in dependence and faith. Let's live with that reality. Let's pray. God, thanks so much for your word that just reestablishes you as the king, the promised one, the one with all authority. God, thank you for that reminder. Would we, would we live that reality? Not worried about what the crowd thinks, not worried about what the crowd says, but with our hope fixed on you, the one who can speak and make it happen. Would we live for you in dependence and faith? In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Norris Ferry Community Church located in Shreveport, Louisiana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Norris Ferry Community Church, please visit us online at norrisferrychurch.org.